You're listening to Freedom Christian Fellowship's podcast. Well, we are continuing in our series on the Gospel of John, and what we've titled this is The Gospel is Jesus, and Jesus Changes Everything. Jesus Changes Everything. And so today, we are going to look at a couple of things on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so what we're going to be doing is an overview of a couple different chapters, some, some, some various um, interactions that Jesus had as he began, began his earthly ministry, um, as John tells it. And what we're going to do is just look at some attributes of what it means to be a disciple. And so I would encourage you to take notes as we go through this. There's, there's a few points I'm going to be making um, and some of these are going to stand out to you. Uh, this is not a batting order. This is not a one, two, three, four, five thing. This is something that the Lord might speak to you in an area and say, well, I need to grow in that. And so like anything that we hear according to the word is that we don't attain that just through our understanding in our mind. We ask the Holy Spirit to make that revelation in our, in our hearts. And he does the heavy lifting. So if you hear something today and you go, oh, man, I'm falling short on that area, don't worry. Don't worry. Why? Because if you lean into the Holy Spirit and ask him for help, he will strengthen you and empower you to do what he has called you to do. Okay. so I want to just start off with that before I dive too deep into this. I want to let you know, uh, for those of you who, who haven't heard me mention this in the last few weeks, that I am actually going out of the country tomorrow I'm going to be traveling to Brazil with Pastor Kenneth Wolf. Um, we're, we're getting on a plane about midday tomorrow, and we'll be in Brazil, in Sao Paulo, Brazil. It is, um, I think, the second largest city in the world. And, it, uh, and, and we're going to be doing a leadership conference with some other pastors. And with the pastors in that area, it's going to be phenomenal. And so I would really appreciate your prayers. I'll be gone um, the 10th uh, tomorrow through the 18th, and then I'll be flying back into Houston, and the very next day, I'm getting on a plane with a team from here, including uh, Buddy Cooper from our church, and we're going to go to Honduras for four days, all right? And in Honduras, we're doing a, a true um, a missionary work. It's a dental thing that we're going to be doing. There's a dentist and some hygienists that are going with us. They're going to be pulling teeth. Um, in case you missed it, the last time they did this, they pulled over 600 teeth. This is such an important ministry to the, to the uh, people there that we're going to be uh, at w- with. And then also we're going to be uh, building some roofs for some, some homes in the village there and pouring some foundations for some homes in the village there. So I would appreciate you guys just keeping us lifted up. And so you know the connection to Honduras. In the past, we've taken a team from Freedom, and that's our goal again as we reconnect with the pastor down there is in the, maybe toward the tail end of this year, we might be taking another trip down there. So any of you that feel a heartbeat for missions or to go to do something like this, this is such a beautiful ministry. Pastor Solomon, the Lord called him there um, he's a Honduran, but the Lord called him to this mountain, this village that is deeply impoverished. And they have established a church, an orphanage, a school, a store, and they minister to this mountain where there's thousands of people on this mountain. And so it's a very amazing thing. We've, we've given to this, helped that work, and so we're staying connected to that. So I appreciate your prayers as we go 
as we travel. I appreciate you guys being in agreement that God just does some powerful things. And uh, man, it's so amazing to be connected to the body of Christ on a larger level. And you guys are a part of that. So thank you very much. You guys are going to have a great time while I'm gone. You won't even miss me. You won't even know that I'm gone. Um, it's going to be phenomenal. So, so just keep on keeping on, all right? All right, so let's dive into this. And Jesus changes everything, the gospel of John. All right. So what we're seeing again here as we're going to start in the second half of John, of John chapter 1 is that we see a conversation that, that John the Baptist, not to be confused with the writer of this gospel, John the Beloved, we see John the Baptist who God used as in what I believe in an apostolic uh, capacity to prepare the way what he describes of himself and what Jesus says about John the Baptist to, do, to begin to prepare the way for Jesus to come. Now I want to just stop and say something on a deeper level if I can, if you'll allow me to, and I really want you to hear this. All right, this is a slight deviation off of what we're going to be covering today, but it's important. Is that when we look at the New Testament and we see the idea of the new covenant, Paul writes to us in Ephesians and outlines what is called or what we've called the fivefold ministry, which is the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, and the teacher. Far too long, what we've seen in the body of Christ is this has become a hierarchy. God never intended for that to be a hierarchy. Apostles are not greater than a pastor, nor is an evangelist greater than a prophet. They all work in unison, and what the Bible tells us about them is that they are the foundation. They are the foundation. Typically, when you walk into a beautiful home, and you see all the fancy stuff in a home, you don't go and the first thing that comes out of your mouth is, man, what a nice foundation. What a nice foundation. I cannot believe this. I really, really like what you did with your foundation. You don't say that. But yet the Bible says that about the apostles and the prophets. So the apostle and prophet is not a title. It is a movement. And so we need to ask ourselves this question. Why did Jesus need somebody to come and introduce him? Anybody thought about that? He is God. He is God incarnate, God with us. He could have shown up and been like, I am the guy. Mic drop, walk away. But he didn't. The Bible tells us and prophesies to this point that John had to come first. And why? And this is what I believe and what I want to encourage you as we pursue fivefold ministry in this church is that each one of these gifts work hand in hand. And what John was doing was tilling up the ground. As a matter of fact, in John 3, John says of himself that I have come, I have come to make the crooked places straight and the high places low. He was tilling the ground. And when we allow these fivefold ministry to work in conjunction with one another, the ground is right for the Holy Spirit to plant the seed and for it to flourish. Because you know what is beautiful within the body is you. You are the finish in the house. You are the fine granite in the custom cabinet tree. You are the nice decorations in the house. That is who you are to glorify Jesus Christ. 
You are what the world sees. And so when Paul writes this, this is the revelation that we see. Now, why does that make sense to what I'm saying right now and not just a complete rabbit trail? It's because this is who John the Baptist was. As a matter of fact, we see this in, in between these chapters that we're going to be looking at. As the Pharisees asked John, are you Elijah? And John goes, nope. Are you, a, are you the prophet then? John says, nope. I'm the one who's come to declare to you who the Lamb of God is. To make the way straight for him. All right, so let's dig into this now that we see this in John 1. Verses 29 through 31, it says this, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water is that he might be revealed to Israel. And John is making a lot of powerful, saying a lot of powerful truths in this. He's talking about the deity of Jesus. He is the one who comes before me. He was before the foundation of the world. We talked about that last week when John the Beloved declares who Jesus is. That he is the word, that he is God, that he was from the beginning, that he is creator, that he is life, that he is light, he is God. And John is reflecting this, John the Baptist is reflecting the same statement. And we hear this through John's testimony. But what comes after this is amazing, is that a couple of guys begin to follow Jesus. So the first thing that I want you to see as we make a commitment to be disciples for Jesus, one of the first attributes we see of being a disciple is that a disciple is someone who lives to make the truth of Jesus known. A disciple of Jesus is someone who lives to make the truth of Jesus known. John committed himself to this truth. His goal was to make Jesus known. This wasn't just simply a, a mere proclamation. He wasn't just using his words, but he was speaking from the revelation of who Jesus was, the truth of who Jesus is. And the question that I have for us when we just look at this first thing, and we're going to dig into this scripture and, and pick this apart in some ways to see if we can see anything past just these stories of interaction that Jesus has with a couple of guys in a couple of places to see if there's something that we can take away that we can grab. And so the question I have for you is this, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? And how has the truth of who you believe he is, how is that truth being displayed in you? How has that truth changed you? Because this is what John is saying. This is who Jesus is. To know Jesus is to be changed by Jesus. To know Jesus becomes life, becomes light. It changes everything. Jesus changes everything. And so as we proclaim Jesus, we're not just simply using words, but what we are talking about and what we are showing is the transformation of who Jesus has been in us. And so I'll ask you this secondary question. 
Am I, are we living in the transformation, transforming, I'm sorry, truth of Jesus every day? Are we living in the transforming truth of Jesus every day? It's not a one and done thing. It's an ongoing thing. And this is what we see throughout these interactions as men begin to drop everything and follow Jesus. As Jesus begins to move on the earth, as John's gospel tells us, and he begins to perform some miracles and have these key conversations, is that Jesus changes everything. So how is Jesus transforming you? How is he transforming you? Because he desires to transform you every day, every day, every day. To show you something fresh of himself, to reveal himself in a greater way. The depth of his love, the depth of his care, the depth of his freedom, the depth of his peace, the depth of our salvation, the depth of his calling for you. We have to decide in our hearts that to make the truth of Jesus known known means that we live in the transforming truth of Jesus every day. Every day. So what's our response to that? At the end of these points, I'm going to give you a response and give us a moment to ask the Holy Spirit to do something. It's a little bit different because typically I speak and we pray at the end. But we're going to stop in between these points as a moment of reflection and ask the Holy Spirit to do something inside of us. And so this might be our response. Holy Spirit, help me to know Jesus as the living truth. The Lamb of God who's taken away my sins and causes me to walk in new life. Holy Spirit, would you make the transforming truth of Jesus alive in me? That I would walk in that power, just like John said. Behold, here is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. That new life to be reflected in me. All right. So moving down further into John 1, verses 35 to 39, it says this. Everybody all right? Okay. The next day, John was there again with his two disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? (laughs) I just love that. (laughs) What do you want? What do you want? Why are you following me? What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Verse 39, come, he replied, and you will see. Here we see this, and and so this here is Andrew. And some scholars believe that this is also John the Beloved. That John was a disciple of of John the Beloved, was a disciple of John the Baptist, and so was Andrew. They were following John. Their hearts were getting stirred. They were... They were listening. They were getting prepared in their heart. And when when John the Baptist said, look, here is Jesus. Here is the Lamb of God. Immediately their attention went here and went whoop. But there's a very important interaction that we see here that sometimes we can look at. And I don't know if you read it like I do, but I'm kind of like, I felt like Jesus is being a smidge rude. (laughs) What do you want? (laughs) What do you want? If somebody, if somebody, you start to, to follow somebody and they turn around and say, what do you want? What's your, what's your take on them? Why do you feel like, do you, do you get offended? I just found that a little funny. 
But here we see something I think is very special if we choose to see it. And it's this, is that the second attribute of being a disciple is having our hearts completely turned to Jesus. If we're in a pursuit to grow as disciples of Jesus, then our hearts have to be completely turned to him. Why? Why? Because Jesus has a very powerful, thought-provoking exchange with Andrew and, and, and possibly John here. Because Jesus isn't simply asking, what do you want? He's saying this, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? And this is a question that should always linger in our heart as an exchange that Jesus is continually asking us, what do you want from me? You've heard about who I am from John. And those weren't just words. Those were transformational, powerful, Holy Spirit-driven things. But what do you want from me? And this is a foundational question for every disciple to push into. Because oftentimes we come to Jesus and we say, this is what I want. This is what I want. But Jesus looks at us and says, what do you want from me? Who do you think that I am? What do you believe to be true about me? And the posture is completely different. He invites us into this place, and I hope you see this. It is not for us to simply come and lay our list of demands upon him, but an opportunity to be transformed by who he is. Why do I believe that? Because when they re replied back, Rabbi, teacher, where are you staying? Their commitment was already there. That they looked and they said, where you're going to go, we want to go too. And Jesus' response is the same to us today. That when we begin to pursue him with all of our heart, it is a commitment to say, Jesus, where you go, I will go. Jesus looked at him and said, follow me. I'll take you there. Follow me. I'll take you there. This wasn't just a simple invitation over to where Jesus was staying. This wasn't just, hey, will you come and just spend the day with me? We know this because of what happens next. We know this because of the gospel accounts that these men left everything and followed completely after Jesus wholeheartedly. And to be a disciple means... Having our hearts completely turned to Jesus. Following Jesus means we might have to let go of some things. We know this was true about the disciples in the Gospels when they made a decision to follow Jesus. Many of them let go of their, their jobs. Some of the dedication they had to our jobs. But for us, some of the things that we might have to let go of could be our past. Our sin, our hurts, our wounds. What we all must let go of to be wholly committed, having our whole hearts committed completely to Jesus, will be our affections to the world and our wrong desires. One thing that every one of us will have to give up to follow Jesus wholeheartedly is the lordship of our lives. We can't follow Jesus and still maintain the lordship of our life. 
And I know that you might say, well, Pastor, I think you're reading a lot into this. No, because here's the thing. Again, we see that these men followed Jesus completely. That they followed Jesus completely. They followed him wholeheartedly. And this is what it means to be a disciple. When we come and we hear Jesus say, what do you want? What he's asking us is, will you follow me? Will you come and be conformed into my image? Will you follow me wholeheartedly? Will you give up the things that maybe you held on to that were moving you the wrong direction? Will you let go of your past? Will you let go of your failures? Will you let go of your sin? Will you let me solve that? Will you let me heal the wounds of of your life, the hurts of your life? Will you let me become the Lord of your life? We see this over and over again throughout the Gospels. Jesus' words echo largely throughout every one of the Gospels, this powerful truth that to follow Jesus, we must follow him wholeheartedly. And so, what might our response be? Again, because here's the thing, is that if you, this hits you and it kind of hits you sideways, it feels like a jab to the, your gut. Understand this, that you can't do this thing. You can't follow Jesus wholeheartedly without the great grace that he gives and the power of the Holy Spirit. So our response might be this, Holy Spirit, help me to have my heart fully set on Jesus so that my desires would be his desires, that my desire would be to follow him every day of my life. Maybe some of us need to pray this, Holy Spirit, would you remind me of the passion I had when I first found Jesus? When I first found Jesus. When I first encountered His grace. Maybe some of our passion is growing a little dim and, and it's, it's, it feels like a little dry. But we ask the Holy Spirit, would you please remind me of that first encounter that I had with Jesus and renew that passion within me. Alright, we're going to keep moving down the line. Everybody still okay? All right, good, all right. I just want to make sure my kids are leaving. It's like, you know, that's not a good sign. Go ahead. You got to go to the bathroom, huh? Right in the middle of my sermon. I see. That's right. Get her, Ronnie. Lay that karate chop on her. Unbelievable. You know you're preaching bad when your own kids leave. <laughs> you're not getting nothing from Brazil, Abby. <laughs> Joke's on you. John 1, 40 through 42. All right. I really, my goal is not to bring these things out because discipleship is an act of obedience. Absolutely. You cannot separate obedience out of discipleship. You cannot uh, remove lordship out of this equation of discipleship. But I want you guys to know, I can't say this enough, that we have to lean into his grace and the work of the Holy Spirit to do this. This is not in your own strength. Some of you might have grown up in legalistic churches. We are not a legalistic church. This is not something that you're going to be good enough for. Check enough boxes, do enough right things, have your rear end in a seat at church enough. It is not going to work that way. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the work of grace, okay? So all these things we come to by grace. In John 1, 40 through 42, it says this, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, (laughs) Was one, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is Christ. When we sang that song, just a, uh, uh, I think it's a closing song, You are worthy of your name. 
Do you understand what we're singing? When we sing the name of Jesus, what we are saying is that you are Messiah. You are Redeemer. You are the prophetically promised one. We are saying that as Messiah, you are God. And only through you can redemption come to us that we might be reconciled to God. So what we read here, sometimes we blaze through because we look at Messiah and Christ as these names for God. And we just kind of lose sight of those things sometimes. They become less than impactful for us. But what we see is this, is that this statement that Andrew's making to his his brother Simon, who becomes Peter, is this. We have found the promised one, the redeemer of mankind. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of God, uh, son of John, sorry. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. And here, when we read the account of Peter coming to Jesus, I believe we get a little glimpse at maybe the third attribute of being a disciple, which is bringing people to Jesus. One of the greatest joys that we can have in following Jesus is being able to lead somebody to Christ. I read, I listened to a podcast by John Ortenberg, and it was a funny story of Eugene Peterson who wrote the message translation. I'll share this with you. This was hilarious concerning bringing people to Jesus. Is that when Eugene Peterson was a young boy, he was, uh, grew up, and he was, grew up in a Christian home. But he had a bully that always picked on him every day. And he went and told his mom. And his mom said, well, son, that's what Christians do. They have to put up with persecution. So you need to just put up with it and love him like Jesus would. So he's like, well, that stinks. <laughs> and so a few days later, he was out with his friends. And this bully comes up and starts picking on him. Starts pushing him, shoving him, picking on him, calling him names. And he said that all of a sudden, something just flipped in his heart and his mind. And he turned around, and he punched this kid. And the kid fell to the ground. And he got on top of this kid, and he started punching and punching him in his face. And he said it was such a delight to see that crimson red blood flow out of his nose. And he felt such relief. And he said, say uncle and I'll stop. And I'll I'll stop. And the kid never said uncle. So he kept on hitting him. He said it felt so good. And then all of a sudden the words of his mom just kind of rung into his heart. And he remembered his Christian character. And so he switched from saying, say uncle and I'll stop. And he kept punching him in the face. And he said, confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And I'll stop. And eventually this kid confessed Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, and he stopped. And that was Eugene Patterson's first time that he ever brought somebody to Jesus. (laughs) It can be one of the greatest joys of your life, huh? All right. Amen. Rocky said amen. All right. (laughs) So we see this, and, and, and... here is the thing is that this account that's written of Andrew is, is this, is that Andrew's not giving a cerebral understanding of who Jesus is to his brother, but rather speaking from the impact of the Holy Spirit. He's experiencing one of the greatest joys that we can also have as disciples of Jesus. I love how the scripture tells us that the first thing that John uses this language, and I, and I think it's impactful, 
that Andrew did not waste any time after he spent that day with Jesus, but immediately he goes home and he goes to his brother. He goes to who he loves. And his desire is to share with the person he loves the greatest thing that's ever happened to him. And when we break that down and we ask just like, Lord, would you show us something inside of this? What we see is this, that we too should have that heart as disciples of Jesus, especially for the people that we love so dearly, but not just for them, for everybody to share this wonderful transformational truth. This is why we go back to the first thing is that Jesus has to be transformational because when he's transformational, we have an overflow in us that desires to share with somebody the truth of who Jesus is. It's our pleasure to bring Jesus to people and people to Jesus. And here's what I mean by that, is that you can invite them to church. That is a great way to bring somebody to Jesus. So many people here probably, when your, your, your journey with Jesus started, started because somebody invited you to something, maybe church or a meeting or something. VBS, a long time ago if you were a child, whatever it might be. But also, we bring Jesus to people. Meaning this is that you carry Jesus with you in the workplace, in your neighborhood and communities. And that's one of the greatest joys that we have of being disciples of Jesus is the ability, to the, the privilege, I should say, of bringing people to Jesus. So here's the secondary question I have in this thought. Is who in my life, in your life, needs to hear about who Jesus is? And that's a very simple question that could have a very powerful impact. And sometimes we don't think about that enough. To say, God, in, in, the, in the bigger scope of my life, the people that you have placed me in the middle of, that maybe I just kind of overlook or I don't think twice about, would, would you show me? Would you show me those people that you want me to reflect Jesus to? The answer is he wants you to always reflect Jesus. But there may be somebody specific that needs to hear that the Holy Spirit is speaking to. But they need to hear the truth of who Jesus is to you. And so this could be our response. Holy Spirit, help me to see those around me that need to hear who you are. Would you give me eyes to see? Would you help me to be bold to share the love of Jesus with those around me? When we pray that from our heart, what happens is this, is that we're giving permission to the Holy Spirit to help us to see people the way that Jesus does. What I found in my life is this. If I don't hunger for this, if I don't open myself up to this, and, and know that this is something that Jesus asks of me. And invite the Holy Spirit to empower me in this area. That it's really easy just to go about my life in just a very normal manner. To not see the people around me that God's placed me in the middle of the way that Jesus sees them. And I think we get a good glimpse of how significant this is in this, in this dialogue that John writes says, listen, when Andrew heard, when he saw and he knew who Jesus was, when he followed him, this is what he did. The first thing he did is he went and he told his brother. He brought his brother to Jesus. All right. I'll keep moving down here. In John 1, 
47 through 51. Here we have the calling of Philip and his brother Nathaniel. And it says this, when Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, here, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me, Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And this exchange with Nathanael that is preceded by Philip, his brother, following him. And Philip goes to Nathanael the same way that Andrew goes to Peter and tells him, we found the Messiah. We found him. And Nathanael is doubtful. He's doubtful. But here is the, the grand takeaway, I believe, of, uh, when it comes to the character of being a disciple of Jesus that is so powerful about this exchange. And it's this, is that being a disciple of Jesus is knowing that he knows you and has called you by name and loves you personally. Why do I say that? Because in this exchange, Jesus uses a very powerful, very powerful words to, to show Nathaniel the truth of who he is and what we, we commonly read as a prophetic insight. Jesus starts the conversation and he says, here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And that's a statement of honor. Of course, we read that naturally, but in those times, it was a statement of righteousness and piousness. And Nathaniel's natural response to Jesus is, how do you know me? How do you know that I'm good? How do you know who I am? You don't know anything about me. You've never even seen me. But Jesus' answer unlocks something in Nathaniel's heart. That has this amazing truth attached with it. And Jesus tells him, while you were under, still under the fig tree before, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Before your brother even came and told you that I might be the Messiah, I saw you. And what were you doing? We can speculate. What I personally believe, this is just my opinion, is that Nathaniel was pondering these things. He was pondering some prophetic things. He was thinking about the Messiah, the redemption of Israel. What Jesus says here is a statement of somebody who would be doing that because this term that Jesus uses, which has 100% practical truth attached to it, meaning this, Nathaniel was literally under a fig tree and Jesus saw him, but this statement also has a larger measure to it, a larger picture to it. And it's this, is that in the days that Jesus walked on the earth, those who would contemplate prophetic things would often go and study the word and scroll through the word under a tree. That would be their place of contemplation. And what Jesus says to Nathaniel that strikes home, that switches the gear or the switch in Nathaniel's heart, says this, is that, Nathaniel, I saw you. I saw you. You think that your brother's getting caught up in hysteria. You think that I'm a popular movement, that I'm just walking on the earth and there is a wake behind me of people just following me. But I want you to know something, that I see you. 
I see you. I know you. I love you. You have been on my heart. And I don't care how you came into the kingdom. I don't care if you were at a youth event and you came up with 50 other, 100 or 150 other kids. I don't care if you gave your life to Jesus with 25 kids at VBS or you just slipped up your hand quietly in the back of a sanctuary or you made a commitment to Jesus in your closet. I don't care how it happened. The truth is, is that Jesus knew you. He loved you. He called you by name. He saw you. Oh, and a disciple of Jesus never loses the wonder of that moment that he knows my name, that he loves me, that he sees me, that he called me. Oh. I gave my life to Jesus the first time, <laughs> when I was five. <laughs> oh, that's just me being silly. I'm just kidding. You gave your life to Jesus once, all right? But Jesus saw me when I was five. And I remember when I was 12, sitting in my bed and, and reading the Psalms and hungering for, the, for, the, for God. And I know Jesus saw me because he held me. Oh, not literally. He didn't get in bed with me and cuddle me, No. But he held me. I felt his love surround me. I knew Jesus called me when I was going to Bible school and I was a dumb old knucklehead failing out of high school. And the only place that would accept me was Christ for the Nations in Dallas, Texas. Can I get a what, what, right? And so, and I didn't want to go. And I was sitting there as I was going through the side. And I was going, mm, I don't want to go, mm, I don't want to go, I don't go. And all of a sudden, God just got a hold of me and, and, and freed me up. I knew, I knew that he knew me. I knew that he knew me. And God constantly wants to reaffirm that in your life. That I don't care how you came in. He knew you. He sees you. He loves you. He knows you by name. He called you for a purpose. And let that all in wonder just sit on top of you and become revelation. Deep, deep revelation. Because it will drive you. It will drive you. Mm. So the question I have for us is this. Do we live, do I live in the revelation of the truth that Jesus knows me, that he loves me, that he called me, that he knows my name, he created me for his purpose? If you don't, then pray this prayer. Holy Spirit, rekindle me to the truth of Jesus' love for me because I know that he knows me. I know that he created me. I know that he longs for me. Help me to live in this love. Help me to live in this love. I promise you, if you pray that and you mean that and you lean into the Holy Spirit, it will change your life. It will change your life. It will change your life. I love, <laughs> I just started doing this thing. The Lord reminded me of this in, in, in worship today. <laughs> oh, I'm having a moment. Y'all relax. Just deal with it, all right? So here's the thing is that I would fly, when I, my mom and dad <laughs> loved me so much. <laughs> when they sent me to Bible school, they gave me a one-way ticket. <laughs> I grew up in Washington, D.C., in case you didn't know. And Dallas, Texas is far away. It's about three and a half hour flight. It was slower back then. The planes were slower. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so <laughs> they flapped harder. It was bad. And so <clears throat> I remember getting in that plane and coming over DFW. 
and looking out the window. And the Lord just spoke to me. And I just said, Jesus, I claim this land for you. I don't, I'm, I'm a goofy, not even 18-year-old kid. And I remember flying to San Antonio, and as we're landing, Jesus, I claim this land for you. I remember flying into Los Angeles and seeing L.A. I said, Jesus, I claim this land for you. I remember flying into New Zealand. Now, here's the thing, is that when you know Jesus knows you and he's called you, it begins to put purpose in your life and you begin to move in a place of authority and power and grace and grace and grace. Friends, I'm telling you, it's true. It's true. It's true. All right, let's keep going. Sorry, took a deviation, got a little emotional. I'm back. All right, we're going to move into chapter two. Yeah, we got some time. We'll keep going. So here we see the first miracle of John. And this is, we'll probably stop in chapter 2. We don't need to go into chapter 3. It's okay. The guys that will be preaching the next two weeks might dip into 3 a little bit. And you're in for a treat, man. Got some great teachers that are going to be preaching. So in John chapter 2, and we see the first miracle that John records. And he records a little differently. Now I want to I tell you something before we go into this is that what we see in John's gospel as a reminder, as a refresher, is different than what we see in the synoptic gospels. And when we say, when you hear that term, synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, okay? And what synoptic means is to see through. And there is a basic chronological agreement within those three gospels of Jesus' life. And they're all unique. They're all special. They're all written to a different type of hearer. And they all serve a different purpose, but there's a lot of unity within those three Gospels. And then John breaks the mold. John's Gospel, most scholars, again, believe it was written much later than the first three. But John's purpose was to show who Jesus was, not just who Jesus is. I'm sorry, to show who Jesus is, not just what he did. Okay, so when you read John, if you ever read John, and you go, wait a second, this guy tells these stories that I've never heard in these other Gospels or they're told in the wrong places. And we're going to see that in just a second in John chapter two. Don't get worried. John doesn't necessarily necessarily follow a chronological order that we see in Matthew, Mark and Luke. And there's nothing to worry about, because what John is doing is showing that Jesus is God and proving this through the things that he did. And so out of the seven miracles that are recorded in John, six are unique to, to John's gospel. And this is one of them that we're about to read. And it's powerful and it's amazing. And there's a purpose that we're going to actually see through the context and consistency of John chapter 2. I'm going to show you. And it's amazing because it reflects the heart of a disciple. So here we see in John 2, the first miracle that Jesus performs that John tells us. In verses 7 through 11, it says this, And Jesus said to the servants, this is the, the, the turning the water into wine. This is great, right? Nobody? Okay. All right. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now, now draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though... The servants who had drawn the water knew. 
And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first. And then the cheaper wine, as the, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed him. And that's where I want you to pay attention to. So this is what we see here is that there is a marriage feast. They're, they're having wine and the people just like to drink a little bit too much and they ran out. And so Jesus' mother goes up to him and, and the servants go, oh, we're out of wine. And, and, and Mary tells Jesus and Jesus goes, what does this have to do with me? I don't want to, I'm not, I'm not involved with this. It's not time yet. And there's, there's really some special language in that, that Jesus is waiting to reveal his glory here. And then finally, Mary looks at the servants and says, I know my boy. <laughs> Just go ask him and do whatever he tells you to do. And so, of course, Jesus sees these, these jars that were, were, were used to house water for cleansing. And they were larger than what the wine that you would have drunk from was, were stored in. And so Jesus performs this miracle of turning this water into wine. And it's spectacular. Of course, we hear the review, the Google review of the guy. He's like, whoa, wait a second, the best wine I've ever had. Typically, you bring out the cheap wine after everybody's like, you know, too drunk to realize it. But man, this is really spectacular wine, five stars. I really, really like this. But Jesus here performs this, and what we see as significant about this is twofold. And the first thing that we see here is a pattern that exists in John chapter 2. And it's this, is that conversion comes first. Conversion comes first. I'm going to show you this. Because the next thing that Jesus does in John chapter 2 is he cleanses the temple. Conversion comes before cleansing. Conversion comes before cleansing. Sometimes we think that we need to be clean in order to be, come into a renewed life. But Jesus says, no, I will do the conversion. I will clean you. I will do this. I will make things right so that you can be cleansed. There's a twofold pattern that we see here in John chapter 2. But what I want us to gather here as disciples of Jesus is this, is the statement that John makes in verse 11. When he says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. I think everybody missed this. And all in all, this could have been something that was relatively hush-hush. Jesus himself, when he talked to his mother, said, it's not time yet. But John saw something different, and it impacted him so much that he makes this statement at the tail end of John 2, 11, And it's this, and his disciples believed in him. And I'm not taking something minor and trying to make it major, but here's what I'm trying to get you to see, is that even though this was a spectacular thing that John chooses to write about, the Holy Spirit uses John to write about this, it could have gone altogether kind of unnoticed, 
kind of lost in the terms of the crowd and the party that day. How did this happen? Where did this come from? Nobody stopped and put a spotlight on Jesus, but John saw it, and it created awe and wonder in him. And one of the things that Jesus asks of us as we pursue him in discipleship is that we never lose interest in all in the glory of Jesus. Because this impacted John so much that he looked at this and he said, this is the first of the signs which he revealed his glory. John sat back wide-eyed, mind-blown, going, oh my goodness, this just happened. This guy who is Messiah that John the Baptist has been talking about, who we've been following the last bit of time here, he really is, and he just blew my mind. I saw his glory. I saw his glory and I believe in him. Jesus is still displaying his glory today. He is still displaying his glory today. When was the last time you've been amazed, truly amazed with Jesus? When is the last time you've been in awe of Jesus? Justin, you come on up, man. Maybe it was when somebody you had been praying for received him. And again, this is, speaks to conversion. And this two-part story of John chapter 2. Do we forget that the greatest miracle that Jesus ever gave was new life in him? Do we lose sight of that? That miraculous power? Do we, do we lose the awe of that? When somebody makes a decision and their lives are turned around and there's joy that fills them. It's not wrong to hunger, to see the miraculous, but we should never lose sight of the miracle of new birth. It's not wrong to hunger for the miraculous. When is the last time you reflected on the freedom that Jesus gives or somebody the freedom that somebody you know has received from Jesus? Have you reflected on the time where he healed you or somebody you knew? That he brought his healing? <laughs> When's the last time that you stood in awe of the time that he, you felt him move in your life reassuring you? Jesus gives us opportunity all the time when we, we choose to be still, to listen, to be and stand in awe of who he is. And we can never lose sight of this. We need a hunger for that. We need a hunger for that. When's the last time I felt the glory of Jesus move in my life? And if I can't say that I remember the last time or it's been a long time ago, then this, the follow-up question needs to be this. Am I expecting for it to happen? Am I inviting it to happen? Am I inviting, expecting the glory of Jesus to move through me, to see it on the earth? Church, it's time to wake up to this truth. We've talked in and out of this over the last few months of this idea. We talked about the Lord's Prayer and what Jesus said. 
Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not, it's not this compliance code. It's not Jesus alone. We just want to be holy like you're holy. It's an invitation for the reality of heaven to come and to fill up our life. And too often what we think about in terms of conversion is this, is this, this idea of, of giving our life to Jesus. This is, again, the best miracle that we can ever encounter. Something that we not only need to hunger for, but to be active in the ministry of that. Agreeing with the Holy Spirit. But the conversion of the glory of God means this, is that my life gets lost in Jesus so much that I begin to reflect his glory. And the things that I say, the things that I do, in my expectation, in my faith, in my invitation. And we begin to hunger, to truly hunger for that. I hope that makes sense. Because I don't think being a disciple of Jesus makes any sense apart from this truth. And what I love about the Gospel of John for so many reasons is that John absolutely wears his heart on his sleeve. And don't miss this. Don't miss this. That he goes and he says, I don't know who every... I can imagine him going around going, did, did you... Did anybody, anybody, he's tweeting out, OMG, God just performed a miracle, Jesus is God, can you believe it, water, wine, I saw his glory, <laughs> you guys are, I know you're, you're thinking he's, he's crazy, no, I, I'm being serious, is that John used the modem of his time to say, I don't want this to pass up. Like John could have just given like the, the breakdown of the miracle. He could have left it at verse 10. He didn't. He said, look, this is the first time that we saw him reveal his glory. Oh, come on. Oh. So John doesn't just write the gospel of John. John writes first, second, third John and the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, what does John say? Behold, I see him sitting on a throne. Oh, the elders are gathered around saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But John wasn't surprised by that. You know why? Because he saw his glory. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Come on. Boop. Boop, boop, boop. All right. We need to invite the Holy Spirit to, to do that. All right, so here we see, let's, let's finish up with this really quick. The temple interaction. Because we see conversion, now we see cleansing, okay? <laughs> so Jesus, I'm not going to even read this to you. It's in John 2, 14 to 22. Significant statement Jesus makes here when the Pharisees he takes a whip to the money changers. In verse 17, John writes, he said, His disciples remembered that it's written, Zeal for this house will consume me. Referencing an Old Testament prophecy. And then the Jews of that day said, Hey, what sign can you give us to prove you have authority to do all this? And he says, Destroy the temple in three days. I'll repair it. I'll raise it again. And they replied, 
It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it in three days. There's a lot of information in these little statements. You're talking about the second temple, the temple of Herod. After the exile, the dysphoria, the removal of the Jews, they come back. God uses them and it's a long period. And here Jesus is saying that and they're, they're looking at it through their natural understanding. But of course what Jesus is referring to is the crucifixion and resurrection. And he's talking about a greater temple. There's a whole lot in that that can be preached Much more. But Jesus here is doing something. And and listen, this is what's crazy about this story. Is that what's occurring there in the temple courts is not profoundly bad. Sometimes when we read this with our natural eyes, we go, oh, how dare they? They're charging people to make sacrifice. That's wrong. But this was the practice. Because... The way to sanctification was this. That sanctification came when you traveled from far abroad. It was during the Passover feast. Now again, mind you that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have this account, but it's further in at the tail end of Jesus' ministry. But John includes it here, and I believe it's for this reason. That what these money changers were doing was not inherently wrong. But there was something about what was happening that provoked Jesus. And part of the requirement during Passover is that there could be no leaven in anything that they did. And Jesus saw something that was a mixture in the process of the money changers taking money in order for a sacrifice to be bought, in order for a sacrifice to be slain, in order for there to be a redemption of sin from sin. And Jesus sees this, and he's looking, and all of a sudden this rage fills him, and he takes a whip, and he begins to whip the money changers and knock over tables. And I believe this brings us to our, the last attribute of being a disciple that we'll talk about Today is that disciples of Jesus keep relationship with the Holy Spirit that keeps Him growing in the work of sanctification. And all this means is this. If John chapter 2 has any connection between the wedding feast and the cleansing of the temples, the temple as the way John writes it, that we see that the conversion, that only Jesus can do that, and the cleansing only comes through the blood of Jesus. And I believe one of the takeaways that we have in our life is this. Is as disciples of Jesus, we have a responsibility to go before the Holy Spirit and ask the question, does my life reflect the great gift of redemption that has been given through Jesus Christ. Am I, am I reflecting that truth? Am I reflecting that life? And if there's something in me that is not, if there's something in me that is not pleasing 
that has maybe some of my opinion or my personality or my offense or my issues worked in the middle of this, if I've adapted some of the ways that I believe about God with some of the experiences that have affected my life, then Holy Spirit, will you cleanse me? Will you, will you fix me? Will you heal me? Will you set me in a place where I begin to reflect the truth of who Jesus is? And if any of this makes sense, it tells us this truth, that this ongoing relationship as being a disciple of Jesus, as we continue to have all and know that he loves us and having our hearts fully dedicated to him, that part of this process means that we keep in tune with the Holy Spirit. And we ask the Holy Spirit, am I reflecting the truth of who Jesus is? And so maybe our response looks like this. Holy Spirit, only you can cause me to walk in the truth and the power of the resurrection. Help me to hear and obey you as you lead me so that I can reflect the nature of Jesus and show the world his love. Jesus references the only thing that can cause us to be completely cleansed. In this brief little statement, destroy this temple and in three days it will rise again. Friends, there's only one thing that makes us clean. It's what we sang about today. It's the blood of Jesus. The first step that we receive the blood of Jesus comes at conversion. Jesus, only you can change me. Only you can save me. Only you can take something that in itself, in its own strength, in its sin had no value and turn it into something beautiful. Into something worthy. Into something pleasing. To turn it into the best version of its created self. <laughs> Think about that. Only you can do that, but Jesus, only your blood, only who you are can cleanse me and keep me in the place where I always reflect you. Let's pray. Father, this morning I thank you, Lord, as we've dipped into this gospel, and we understand, Jesus, you are the gospel. You are the gospel. You are the truth. You are the grace. You are the power. It's you. But Jesus, you change everything. Would you help us as we choose to pursue you, to follow you, to be your disciples? Lord, first I pray for those that maybe feel far off. Maybe they haven't even trusted in what you did, Jesus, at the cross. Lord, but we've all been there. Every one of us has been there. And so maybe this morning, if that's you, your prayer goes like this. Jesus, I thank you that through your sacrifice, through your shed blood, only am I cleansed from my sin. I receive the work of the cross. I receive you, Jesus. 
as the one who cleanses me from all of my sin. But Jesus, your resurrection shows me in the same way that I'm raised to new life in you. So be the Lord and the master of my life. Holy Spirit, dwell in me. Make me a son. Make me a daughter of God. Give me ears to hear and a heart to follow. Lord, for every one of us today, God, as we take a step, Lord, there's areas and maybe some of these things hit in different areas in our life. God, would you help us? Would you help us? Holy Spirit, would you help us? If we need to give our lives fully, our hearts fully over to you to let go some of the areas that we've tried to stay in control of, Holy Spirit, would you help us? Would you help us to reflect the glory? Would you help us to be in all of you? Would you help us to walk in the revelation of your love that first called us and knows us by name? Holy Spirit, would you make that alive inside of us? Holy Spirit, would you walk with us and give us ears to hear and eyes to see that we might, that we might reflect the truth of who Jesus is. Cleanse us where we need to be cleansed. Correct us where we need to be corrected. Help us to walk in new life in the areas where we need to walk. I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for these people, Lord, that you love so much. I thank you, God, for what you're calling our church to. I thank you, Lord, for the power that you have given us in Jesus Christ. Lord, that you have called us to display as a church to carry the message of the freedom of Jesus. Let it ring in us. Let you, who you are, Jesus, to be truly transformational in us. Amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? I'm going to tell you all something. I'm going to miss you guys. I'm going to enjoy Brazil, but I'm going to miss you guys. I'm going to be samba in and stuff at church. <laughs> Lift him up. His name be lifted. <laughs> I'm going to be, you know, the trumpets will be playing in church. You know, maybe they'll let me play the bongo. All right. We'll be worshiping. But I'm going to miss you guys. I'm going to miss you guys so bad. And I'm going to tell everybody that I get the opportunity to, on, a sun, on next Sunday, I'll be speaking in a church in Brazil. And I'm going to tell them, and I hope it's a crazy church. I hope it's a church full of worshipers and passionate for Jesus. Because I'm going to tell them that there's this other church in Texas. That's your sister, your brother and sister church that is crazy about Jesus too. And when you guys worship three hours in advance of us, we're right behind you and we're keeping that up. All right, and so when we come back, we're going to have trumpets and a whole Latin percussional thing. Justin, get ready. You're going to do it, all right? And that church in Honduras and what God's doing there and those orphans, I'm going to look at them and I'm going to say, you're not alone. Oh, you're not alone. Because your brothers and sisters in Texas, in Port Nature's Texas, they see you and they pray for you and they love you and they give to you. Oh, mm. Woo. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Let me just declare as Father, I just declare the grace of Jesus over every one of us, that the glory of Jesus would be reflected in us in such a powerful, truthful way this week. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you guys so much. I'll see you in a few weeks. Mm-hmm.